everyone, welcome to Social Work Stories. I'm Mim Fox and I'm here with my lovely co-host, Liz Murphy. Hello. Hello, Liz. Hi, Mim. This is such an exciting episode for us. We're Mm. having a little bit of a party on this episode because we have hit 10,000 downloads. Yeehaw. And, you know, I was trying to think, it's a contemporary thing now. Like, so what's the ritual? You know, 10 years marriage, it's tin aluminium gifts. Are you trying to say that we're married now for 10,000? Yeah, I, I don't know. What do you what do, do for do? a 10,000 download? It's, yeah, no, that, yeah, what do you do? Well, I'll accept, you know, a little um, emoji of a diamond ring from you or, you know, something equally nerdy online. That's fine. Okay. All right. I'll, look, I'll think of something for the 15,000. Listeners, if you have any ideas of anything Liz should give me online, feel free to send that in. But regardless, we're celebrating yeah, 10,000 downloads. It's exciting. Amazing. Um, We've really enjoyed every minute of this podcast so far. So, so great to be engaging with everyone in this way. This is a really interesting episode we've got tonight. The first thing I want to say to everyone is that at the moment, there is a lot of controversy and talk, especially in Australia and New Zealand, about firearms and access to firearms. I'm really aware that internationally that's a really big issue and I wanted to put that out there to our listeners before we start, Liz, because in this story particularly, we're going to be hearing from a social worker who's working in a 24-hour mental health crisis team where they take calls through the night with people suffering acute mental health episodes And in the story that we're featuring, there is the presence of firearms, there is a topic of suicide Mm. and suicidal intent, and really conscious that these can be some contentious topics for people to be listening to. With that being said, we think that this actually is a really important story to share with everyone, one that really led us into a lot of thinking about the role of social work practice in this 24-hour crisis space. We're going to listen to the story, we're going to have a chat, and then we've actually got a really good surprise for everyone on the theme of our 10,000th birthday. Oh my God, yes, we are celebrating in a special way. We are. We have a contemporary ritual. I just wanted to say, I find this social worker that we're about to listen to a master storyteller. (laughs) She's really good. She absolutely takes me into the place with her. Yeah. And I think that'll be really, I reckon people are going to respond to this particular person's storytelling ability. Yeah, well. I'd agree with that. Enjoy, everyone. We'll um, come back to you at the end of the story. See you then. I work in a mental health acute care service, and part of that service is that we have a mental health line that's a telephone service available 24 hours a day seven days a week and as social workers in the service we as well as the other professions so nurses and psychologists we all um, are rostered on at different times to answer that phone line so sometimes we have to do a night shift and on those night shifts we work alone so it can be really challenging working on the phone line And the short story I'm going to share is about a call that I took. It was quite late at night one evening. As I mentioned, I was there on my own and the phone rang and I took the call and it was a person I'd never spoken to before. I didn't know them. 
and she was an older woman and she started talking and she said to me she was ringing because her um, daughter had earlier called an ambulance because she'd tried to hang herself but the cord broke. So immediately my adrenaline spiked and I was on high alert about risk and I think I immediately offered to call an ambulance and she said no, she declined an ambulance a few times, I tried to suggest that and she said no, they've already been, if they come I won't open the door, I just really want to talk to someone and of course I felt, you know, that's what I'm here for, for her to talk to me and I wanted to make myself available um, to talk to her about her situation. Um, she'd also given me her name and date of birth. So meanwhile, I was quickly trying to access her notes in the computer system while still maintaining engagement with her and concentrating on what she was saying and at the same time trying to very quickly read any notes to see if there was any other information I should know. So when she said, I just want to talk, I don't want you to call an ambulance, I was also kind of taking on board the fact that an ambulance had, according to her, already come earlier um, and paramedics are able to assess people's mental health and make a decision um, on the spot whether a person needs to be brought to hospital against their will, whether they meet the Mental Health Act criteria and um, the paramedics are able to transport someone if that was true that they'd been, someone had already seen her face-to-face and made an assessment that she was safe to remain at home. So I was holding that information and also um, the information that she was declining the ambulance. I noted her speech was a little bit slurred, but she was still lucid and making sense in the conversation with me. Then she said something softly, which I didn't quite hear, that I thought sounded like she mentioned a rifle. I asked her, did you just say that you have a rifle? And she said, no, 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 I didn't say anything like that. We talked a little bit more about her stressful life situation. And then she said, um, again, but this time more clearly, she said, I've got my ex-husband's rifle here and I'm going to shoot my brains out. I said, I'm going to hang up the call now and call triple zero. And she said, no, 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 I, I didn't mean it. I don't have a gun here. I made it up. I won't shoot anyone. But then very quickly after that, before I had even time to sort of gather my thoughts, she said, I've taken a lot of Valium and I'm starting to feel sleepy. So at that moment, I terminated the call and rang triple zero. Meanwhile, I had been looking at the notes and it turned out she had extensive notes in the file. So when that happens, it's quite hard to quickly get a sense of the key things in the notes because there are so many entries in the system and you're trying to maintain your connection with the caller but a couple of things that stood out to me was one I saw something about a previous serious suicide attempt where she jumped out of a balcony and injured herself quite badly sometime in the distant past I saw something about a documented history of alcohol dependence and I also saw that she'd been in hospital just the day before with some sort of suspected seizure related to alcohol and had been discharged against medical advice just the day before so I was sort of holding all that, weighing all that up against her saying not wanting an ambulance. But when she said she had the firearm and she said she'd taken some Valium, that was the moment where I immediately called triple zero. 
gave them a full handover, including the mention of the gun. Um, and then I rang a local hospital in her area, which is a different hospital than where I work. So we cover a large health district when we take the calls on that line. So this was a person that wasn't familiar even to my service or my hospital, but I rang her local hospital, gave them a verbal handover of her likely presentation there by ambulance. And then uh, I was trying to remember, I'd never had a call before involving a firearm and I had some vague memory of a policy somewhere that you need to ring the local police station when that happens. So I rang the local police station and I told them the situation. They had a quick look in the system and they said, oh yeah, we can confirm um, ambulances on the scene, no firearm, but that was all they told me. Then that was it. Then you've sort of done what you can and you just sit there and, you know, you're on your own and all this has happened and your adrenaline's rushing. But what you can do then is start reading the notes. There was no other phone call that moment. So I started reading through her history and the notes and getting a much better picture than obviously what I'd had in that moment. And I discovered that she had made this statement about guns many times Um, And it was a very common thing with her that she would become intoxicated, make statements about um, homicide or suicide, then come to hospital and then become sober and then retract all the statements and say she had no memory of them. Um, The police had, according to the documents, been out to the house many times before and searched the house and there is no firearm, there never was a firearm. There was also notes suggesting that there was a query of whether she had an alcohol-related dementia happening. I could see she'd been in and out of emergency many times, even within the past 10 days, with various things, including alcohol-related seizures, self-discharging against medical advice. So I'm reading all these notes, and you always wonder with these calls, which we do face quite often working in mental health, especially as a social worker, whether you've done the right thing when you take an action that's specifically going against the stated wishes of the caller. This is, I suppose, a more clear-cut case, but it happens all the time that people will ring and talk about their feelings of distress and their thoughts about ending their life or harming themselves, and you have to weigh up the risk and Um, the risk to their life and whether they're safe and it's your responsibility to make a decision in that moment sometimes very rapidly about whether to call an ambulance or whether to you know speak to the person until you can feel that their distress has abated and that you can make a plan with them for follow-up and you can never be sure that they're not going to end their life after you hang up that phone so it's a situation that happens regularly that I find a very difficult part of the role and very complicated in terms of ethics and practice decision-making. You sort of find that different colleagues have different approaches or different thresholds for risk, I suppose, um, for carrying risk and for being comfortable with situations where sometimes, you know, it is possible to respect somebody's wishes and just hear their distress and maintain a calm manner yourself and just maintain your empathy and just be with that person and go there to that dark place but then kind of bring them out of that dark place and make a plan but often you're left unsettled and you check the notes the next time you're in to check what happened make sure they're still alive basically and you've always I find got this niggling fear that perhaps you know something has happened after you hung up the phone and made that decision so in this case the only other thing I could do was watch 
the computer system to see when what would happen when the person arrived by ambulance. So I'm sitting there by myself waiting, refresh, hitting refresh, 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 and eventually the note pops up that they've presented to emergency. So I'm reading to see what happened. First they're talking to the client. I can see from the notes and it says, you know, client presented as confused and disoriented wasn't sure how they'd ended up in hospital and said they never said they were suicidal and they never said anything about a gun. Um, no intention of ending my life. I just want to go home. But confused, had to be told a few times where they were, what, which hospital it was. And then the next note that appeared quite a while later, just before I was ending my shift, I had a last look before I went home in the morning, that was written in all this medical and nursing language that I'm not really familiar with. But it was pretty clear from the note that the person had um, been um, on the way to have a scan of some sort and had lost consciousness and then had had to be um, revived and went to intensive care. Um, and so there was a nurse coming in that morning to replace me, to sort of hand over to, to the morning staff, and I just said, oh, would you mind just looking at this note because I don't really understand the medical language and just tell me what this means. Um, because I took this call and I wasn't sure. And so they had a look and they said, oh, yeah, you saved a life. And, you know, sort of laughed and walked back to their desk and I logged off and went home. There's this perverse thing that happens in these scenarios as well where you almost feel relieved when something terrible happens because then you know that you made the right decision to call the ambulance. So there's been other times where someone's phoned very distressed and asked you not to call and you made the decision to call and then you check the notes later and they came to emergency, they were reviewed by a nurse, a CNC, and they say that they were never going to harm themselves and the clinician overreacted and the um, nurse, you know, does the assessment and sends them back home again and you just feel quite um, deflated and that you caused a lot of trauma to the person and also that you wasted um, ambulance resources, hospital resources, and perhaps you've, you know, alienated that client or that person. So you feel really bad in a way when you see a good result, whereas in this instance you've, I realised I was feeling, which, you know, is terrible, that I was feeling sort of relieved that actually that person did need an ambulance and I made the right decision. Um, in this case, because of the mention of the gun and everything, I suppose I couldn't have made any other decision, but there is this phenomenon where you check the notes later and if something terrible happens, you feel, oh, okay, good, I made the right decision. But if nothing terrible's happened, you feel like you made the wrong decision and wasted everybody's time. So in this case, yeah, apparently, um, yeah, the person passed out and was revived and was in ICU and recovered. And then you sort of just let it go because these notes are mostly... Well, some of them are medical. I can't understand them anyway. It's another hospital. It's not a client that's anything to do with our service. Never going to have anything to do with them again unless they happen to ring when I happen to be on shift. And that's it. The, the thing is finished and you have no further involvement. And I think it's just an area that is very um, complex and very challenging for social work because our priority is to be client-centred and be empowering and not be... Um, coercive or you know overpowering a client's self-determination and their rights to that and yet it's quite regular in this job that you do do that and some colleagues will find that easier or a quicker decision um, and others will sort of wrestle with it more and make different decisions so I think it's a really interesting area and um, one I'm still learning a lot about. We're back. 
Yes, Men, we are. You and I have both had experience in this space. We have. Because we both have worked for telephone crisis services. I've worked for Lifeline. You've worked for another organisation. So that image of the social worker sitting on her own in that uh, office in the middle of the night, and I've kind of got this vision of this wire that's attached to this woman, God knows where, let's say up the north coast of Australia, and they're having this conversation, and this social worker is listening to this woman who is in high distress and threatening to kill herself. Oh, I know, it's a bit heartbreaking. I, um, I think this is a really common experience for people. You know, coming into these helping professions, a lot of mm. people will do those small courses that um, big non-government organisations with 24-hour crisis lines will provide and they'll volunteer or work on those lines for a period of time before they then work out what they're going to do with the rest of their career. So I think it's a really common experience. I remember doing that for about a year in an interesting time in my career, trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And the silence is deafening in the middle of the night. When it's just you, there's no one else in the entire building. And sometimes you're doing it from home, which is even more silent in some ways. And I think when that phone rings and you pick it up, the sense of responsibility that you actually have for that call mm. is absolutely enormous. Yeah, and you could hear that, couldn't you? How, I mean, I had that, also had that image of her listening, getting a sense of, oh, God, she's got a rifle yeah. with her. And then that juggle of looking for notes. Yep. Yeah. Uh, having to get police involved eventually. But tuning in. Having to make the decisions at the same time as still being present with the call When do you make that decision? And trying to make it really, like, that it's not obvious that you're actually shuffling through papers or going through the computer screen, trying to figure out what's what you're doing in the background while you're trying to keep calm, and keep present. And connect with this woman. Yeah. When, um, when she said she thought she'd heard, heard her say she had the rifle and then later on she had heard it, and you can just imagine her thinking process, right? I thought I heard it. Oh, thank God I didn't. Mm. And you could just imagine her like taking a breath at that point because that then changes the scenario significantly, right? It actually now becomes a police matter, not just an ambulance matter. But there is that. But there's also she's reading through the screens of this is something that's common to this woman's call, right? Yeah. So isn't there that tension of she does this? Yeah. She survives, but then there's also that, but I've read some policy back there that says when, if someone mentions firearms, I've got to call the police. I mean, her head must have just been going all full. over the place. Her head's really full and she's trying to figure out what she's trusting in that scenario. Oh, Is nice. she trusting the words from the caller? She's saying she's suicidal. She's saying she's got a rifle. She's saying this is the emotional state she's in. But what she's seeing on the screen is painting a different picture. So is she acting on the words of the caller or is she acting on what she can see is the history? There's that, Mim, but there's also the fact that we know that she has threatened suicide in the past, puts her up as a high risk. Yes, we know that. So there's all that going on as well. Yeah. She can't ignore this woman's cry. Yes, so she's actually having to undertake a risk assessment in her head at the exact same time. Mm. as everything else. It's a massive juggle in the middle of the night when you're all on your own. 
But wasn't there that little voice going on about, oh, calling out the troops, cost of that in terms of time and resources and what if it's just another one of those calls that she's made in the past? And she actually played that over a couple of times, didn't she? Yes. Am I wasting? Am I wasting the ambulance resources? Am I wasting the time of the police? Am I wasting the emergency department resources, right? She felt such responsibility for what was happening here with this caller that actually it was a question of her own integrity around her practice. Oh, yes. She was actually, that's what she was questioning, whether she really believed in herself and stood by her professional decision-making in that moment. And you know when later on she says to the nurse, oh, I don't understand that medical terminology, what does that mean? And the nurse really flippantly says, oh, yeah, you saved a life. But the importance of that comment for that social worker who had actually been refreshing the page constantly, trying to see what was happening with that person because the whole time she's questioning her integrity and her professional decision-making. And the flippant comment from the nurse has actually made her go, oh, I did the right thing. Hmm. But mostly she wouldn't have that. No. So this was one of those stories where there is an ending where she can actually go, oh, I now see my intervention saved this woman's life. But mostly she wouldn't have that. No, mostly she would have no idea what happened to the people who called in the middle of the night. I think that's one of the hardest things about middle of the night work. It's always crisis. And you just very rarely get the follow-up to see what happened, what's the end of the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's quite brave work, actually, doing it in that very isolated, solitary space, isn't it? I couldn't help but wonder what she would have talked about in supervision that month. You know, like, for sure, this case, she would have talked about this call yeah. And I wonder what that conversation would have looked like. I wonder whether there would be, have been an ethical component to it around the burden of carrying that risk. If you follow client self-determination to its extreme, this person didn't want the ambulance called, didn't want their life saved if it was at risk, just wanted to talk. But she had to weigh that up with the responsibility she felt and mm. knew that there was actually a risk to this person's life. Mm. Yeah, I definitely think there would have been an ethical component coming out in supervision. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for that one because I think you're right. Yeah, mm. it's a keep you up at night kind of case. Literally. Literally. You got it in the night, you kept up at night. Amazing. We're hilarious on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> We've got something really exciting now. We actually have... Uh, Ben Grace, who is the fantastic musician who supplied the music for our podcast that our listeners hear at the beginning and end each episode. And we're going to invite him on to play us some music. What do you think? Oh, fantastic. Excellent. My heart ends or it does A deep and ancient chill within my bones Never since the envy that spilled brother's blood We're all dying to throw stones 
Saint Louis Springs arrives For all of the kids now coming home And I see a struggle that binds us all tonight Much as the streets to its home Mama, I'm having those bad dreams again The wicked don't pay for what they done Mama, the evil that dwells in hearts of men No peace or justice under the sun November's afternoon in Cleveland Child with his cheap plastic gun Only half past three And they left him there to bleed Too young to learn he didn't have time to run Mama, I'm having those bad dreams again But the wicked don't pay what they done Mama the evil that dwells in hearts of men no peace or justice under the gun Father of six in New York City selling cigarettes out in the street Dying in daylight for all of us to see I can breathe, I can breathe 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 I can breathe Mama, I'm having those bad dreams where the wicked don't pay for what they done Mama, all oh, the evil that dwells in hearts of men No peace or justice under the sun No peace or justice under the Ben, it is so great to have you here with us. That was absolutely gorgeous. Can I just say that for starters? Thank you. So just to refresh everyone, it's the song Mama by Ben Grace. And what an appropriate song yeah. to be the start and finish to our podcast. Yeah. You took us to the dark place, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> like, the, like our social worker was talking about being in that dark place and bringing out the caller, going in there with her and bringing her out. Yeah, that's, the song really reflected that for me. Hmm. But there is a story behind it, I'm sure, Ben. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the song? Yeah, so I'm an Australian. I lived in New York for seven years. Uh, and that song was written the night that the decision came back to not indict the killer of Mike Brown. The shooting in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, which I think people I think should be aware of at this point in time, really sparked uh, the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement. 
and really kind of got the ball rolling on the conversation in the States around uh, black and brown lives that were just every single day harassed by police and often uh, killed in uh, split-second decisions that were uh, less than ideal. So the song came from that particular day when the decision came back to not indict the police officer who killed Mike Brown. I was shattered. You know, I didn't get out of bed that day and I just didn't know what to do about it. Here I'm Australian living in this different country and, and the gun laws there are so different to what we have here in Australia. Um, and I've, I've wrestled with that so much. And, and my only response, I think, was to really just lament and to go to the dark place and to say that the system feels like it's broken and there's many lives that are suffering. Um, so that's kind of what it was uh, written out of. And it tells not only just Mike Brown's story, but Eric Garner and Tamir Rice as well. But there is that second verse there where there's like that, that moment of hope because as we were writing the song, we got the news that people had been marching from Times Square into Brooklyn and it shut the Brooklyn Bridge. And all over the country, uh, people were rising up to say, this is enough. And it really kind of did spark a movement that brought people together to say, enough is enough around this issue. But we're still, unfortunately, in a sad place in America. Absolutely. But around the world. Yeah. I mean, with the Christchurch massacre that's mm. just happened in New Zealand... It's so pertinent what you're talking about, Ben. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's sad for me is like night after night I get up and say, I'm an Australian, we had a massacre in 1998, we took away all the guns. Uh, and that's a great story, I think, in this nation of Australia. But for Christchurch to happen literally like days after I arrived back here in Australia was devastating to me. Mm. I mean, gun violence happens every day in America mm. and it's, it's commonplace and it's kind of sad when you kind of wake up and there's another one. And, and the sort of complacency that I think kind of sets in. But the fact that it was in New Zealand... I think sparked a lot of attention across the world uh, and, and in a place of worship. Like we've seen that together with the, uh, the Charleston shooting. That's right. Uh, we're seeing kind of this, this wave of white supremacy kind of really washing up and, and Islamophobia, which is rising. And I think that's, it's not a good space for us to be in, in the world. Absolutely. And I think all the discussion that's happened in Australia since that, what happened in Christchurch, mm. has really been debating the decisions that Australia made around gun control. Mm-hmm. In 98, I think for social work, we really need to think about how we, where, not where we stand on this issue, but how we relate to people in these moments of difficulty with it. Mm-hmm. And for that caller, that was a rifle was clearly part of her experience in the darkness that came to her in the night. Yep. That was actually part of her story. Mm. And I think for the social worker to actually take that seriously in that moment. And not be complacent, as Ben's talking about. Mm-hmm. Not be complacent yeah. and see it for what it is. It's yeah. actually really important in the story for that caller that night. Mm. I think to find the place for it, actually, and the empathy within that is really important. But I think having training around that too, I mean, part of the story around Tamir Rice that kills me because you know, he's this 13, 14-year-old child who has a plastic toy gun. And, and, and there was a decision, a two-second decision when the cop pulled up to take that guy's life. But then when you actually go back through and you review the footage of the 911 call, uh, the caller who calls about saying there's, you know, there's a child, maybe a juvenile who's brandishing a weapon, they said twice that that weapon might have been, like, fake. And so I think actually having the resources for people to make those decisions, because it is, you know, yes. there's, there's a, so much going through, you guys talk about the juggling, there's so much going through your mind in that moment to have as much information as you can to make an informed decision. And, uh, but one of the things that breaks my heart about that story is that cop who did kill Tamir Rice had been a problem policeman before 
and, and, and we kind of knew that he'd been moved down from district to district. And so I think that's just accountability for the system for us to, you know, which is my passion, I think, that we need to make sure that we have these things in place in these systems to make sure that people don't make stupid decisions mm. like that, especially like life and death decisions. Yeah, and we come back to actually having integrity in your decision-making yes. and professional decision-making. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, Ben. Pleasure. Really great to have you guest spot on our podcast. We My appreciate pleasure. that. We do. And it was so interesting to, to listen to it in a different way because the version of Mama that we play this amazing earwig that gets into my head, Ben, hmm. and I can hum that tune for hours and hours and hours. It just gets stuck there. Hmm. But it sounded quite different when you did it then on the piano. Yeah. Yeah, we made some decisions in the studio and went a slightly different kind of way. We changed the chorus, in, you know, it's nerdy stuff, but went from four to three. But I think live to me, because every word and every lyric, I'm a lyric guy, and, and that's the storytelling is what we get at. It's what you guys do, social work stories. And I think to kind of get to the point of what you're talking about with politics and with in this field, the story is everything. And mm. it's how we build empathy. And I think when we stand behind just slogans and we get uh, divided by politics and we're just like retweeting memes, it's a very low form of communication. And I think if we can get to places and spaces where we hear from each other, and actually build empathy, that's that's kind of what I think my work is about, what I think what you guys are about. Yeah, I think that's absolutely spot on. Said. Mm. Yeah, really well said. Thanks, Ben. Mm, thank Fantastic. you, Ben. So, listeners, Ben exists in this really weird world that we exist in, which is uh, on Spotify and all these wonderful online places. Ben, people who are just completely now in love with your music, <laughs> where can they hear you more? So I'm at, at Ben Grace Music on everywhere, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, you name it. But if you just search Ben Grace in Spotify, uh, in iTunes, wherever you kind of stream music, I'll be on that. You can also buy it. I know that's an old-fashioned idea, but you that's can actually so buy my music. Of you. My <laughs> Please God. buy my music. Or, or the other way you can do uh, to find me is Patreon. So p a t r e o n dot com slash Ben Grace Music. I give this music away for free to everybody, but you can support me monthly by one dollar or however much you want to do. Uh, that's part of me. I think building community is saying that this is the oldest form of how we fund the arts is through patronage. Um, so if you feel so moved and you kind of feel like uh, this music holds a message for you, I would love to be part of that community with me. Let's call my drinking buddies. So come on board and be a drinking buddy with Ben Grace. Social oh, workers I'd love to be a Ben buddies, Grace drinking say? buddy. Yeah. We're drinking right now. We had, yes, we had a lovely beer together, yes, we did. Ben. Hey, Ben, so you're going back to America? Mm-hmm. When you, and when's that happening? And when are you coming back to Australia? And I've been here for almost a month um, in Australia coming around. So I'm hoping next time I'm back and going to be on here on tour, but I'm going back in a week's time back to San Diego to continue the work. And yeah, I was here last time in the middle of the election in America. And a lot of people are like, why are you going back? I'm like, because there's important work to be done mm. and there's important stories to hear. And since that time, I've actually been touring through the Midwest and the South, particularly to find and to hear the stories of how, how do we get here? You know, what, what's Trump's America about? What, what are the concerns? Um, who are the people that, that are, are very disenfranchised? Uh, and how can we hear these people better? You know, Ben, apparently we have quite a lot of people in America that listen to our podcast, mm-hmm. which I, just blows my mind, really. Um, so maybe if ever they come to your concerts or your performances, they could say, hello, 
I love you and I love the Social Rec Story podcast. <laughs> that would be amazing. Wouldn't it? I hope that happens. Wouldn't it? If you're out there in America, come find me. That's it the would best Apparently, apparently in Illinois, yep. we've got some, some friends in Illinois. So when you're there, give a shout out. Yep, we've got tons of friends in Chicago, Illinois. Been there a number of times. Played in Peoria. Played in um, Rock Island, Illinois. Excellent. You know what I love actually about the way you speak about music, Ben, is about building community. Yep. And, you know, that's something that's really close to our hearts as well. And why we started this podcast mm. was about building the social work community mm-hmm. and making sure that everyone feels actually supported with their collaborators, with their partners in crime and their members of the tribe. We often talk about the tribe yep. and you're really doing something very similar, which I really love. I think that's really great. I think it's important people know they're not alone. Yeah, I think I, I think so that's too. how I've been wired all my life. Community is so important. And I think when you're having a dark night of the soul in the middle of the night, if, if there's someone to call, you can do it. And if, that's, if that is lifeline, great. But if there's other community, you can build around it even better. So just on that note, if our listeners, and we spoke before about how actually doing this 24-hour crisis line work is actually a really common way for people to start to think about coming into the helping profession. And if, um, if any of our listeners actually have done that sort of work, we'd really love to have you guys communicate with us, send us a message on Twitter um, or leave, it, leave us a note in the reviews on iTunes and let us know what do you think that people doing this sort of work should actually know? What's the learning that you've gained from doing the work that you think that you would like to pass on? And let's become that supportive community together where we actually give each other tips on what actually helps us in this work because you are all by yourself in that work in the middle of the night. Yeah. Yeah. On that note, I just wanted to thank everyone who has uh, done a rating for us on iTunes and written a review on the Apple Podcast app. Uh, 10,000 downloads is amazing and yay, thank you. And we just couldn't have done it without those ratings and reviews. Like it's just not possible. So that's phenomenal. I just wanted to highlight Joe McMole. You left us this most beautiful review, best social work podcast available. (laughs) Big call, big call, but I love it. So practical, reflective and crucial. I love the warmth, passion and humour shared by the hosts a must for all social workers worldwide. You know, that's really so lovely, isn't it? Mm. I also want to do another special shout out to Leanne, who's hosting us tonight. Really appreciate that space as well. So if anybody out there wants to help us out, get on that podcast app, people. We say it every time, but it needs to be said. You know that we really love the five-star ratings, don't we, Liz? We love them. Love them. Send, and write us a review. Tell us all about yourself, what you're liking, leave the criticism at the door but you know what you're liking I, I think we could take it do you think we could take it do you think For we're sure. tough enough now Ten thousand no, downloads maybe we are oh okay so, so what was that email the criticism oh. <laughs> <laughs> email the criticism email them separately not <laughs> in the reviews <laughs> people the <laughs> i love it i love it um and all of this is so great so um and you know we'll, 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 we'll do a shout out for you leave us a good enough review We'll be shouting out your name next. So follow us on Twitter at Social Work Story, on Instagram at Social Work Stories Pod, and share a link to our episodes in your Facebook newsfeed and with your own social work tribe. Get the word out there. Let's just keep collaborating, working together, hearing each other's stories, listening to Ben's fantastic music. I love it all. I think it might be time to say goodbye. Okay. Huge thank you 
to Ben Joseph and Justin Stesh, our producers on Social Work Stories, and to Brenna, our Social Work student who has been out there being an amazing interviewer with our social workers and making sure we're capturing those gorgeous stories about such amazing social work practice. Mm. Thanks, Brenna. Thanks, Brenna. And thank you, Ben, for being with us. My pleasure. Really appreciate it. Enjoy, everyone. Have a great fortnight. Take care of yourselves. And we look forward to speaking with you again soon. Bye. Bye.